Good morning. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this beautiful day that you have created. We thank you for the gift of each other, this opportunity to worship you in spirit and truth and to uh, meet new faces and greet old ones. We ask now that you would give us a word of challenge and conviction, a word of liberation and inspiration, a word of healing and transformation. As your word goes forth, we pray as always that it might be for the salvation of souls, the transformation of lives, the edification of all hearers, the furtherance of your kingdom and ultimately the glory of your name. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> My sermon text for this morning is the first lesson assigned for today, uh, which comes to us from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15. Genesis 3, verses 8 through 15. Genesis, of course, is the first book in the Bible. My sermon title for today is Eyes Truly Opened. Eyes Truly Opened. <clears throat> I read a list once, a compilation, entitled Great, Great, Great. Yeah, I'm, I'm Elmer Fudd today. Be quiet. I'm hunting wabbit. Entitled, <laughs> Great Questions of the Bible. Uh, to isolate the questions by themselves, without context, without providing the answers that often followed was an arresting exercise, to say the least. The power of a question left unanswered is profound indeed. It allows the mind to consider all the possibilities in silence and how one would answer oneself. Take verse 3 of the psalm assigned for this morning, Psalm number 130. If you were to keep watch over sins, O Lord, who could stand? Take verse 23 from our assigned gospel lesson today from Mark chapter 3. How can Satan cast out Satan? Or verse 33. Who are my mother? and my brothers. Take verse 13 from our text this morning of Genesis 3. What is this that you have done? Or verse 11, who told you that you were naked? After reading that provocative list, I got to thinking, I wonder what the first question in the Bible is. The serpent said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's Genesis 3, verse 1. Hmm. Did God say? The enemy enters history with a question. Did God say? The enemy entices us away from our Creator down a divergent path with a question. Did God say? The enemy sows seeds of chaos, confusion, and turbulence, leading to death and destruction, not with some magnificent, grandiose temptation of fame, money, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, but rather with an innocent, subtle, seemingly harmless inquiry. Did God 
say? Did God say to love him entirely and love your neighbor as yourself? Did God say the first shall be last and the last first? The humble exalted and the exalted humble. Did God say, as you do unto the least of these among you, so you do it unto me? Did God say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you? If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. Give to anyone who begs, and do not refuse him who would borrow. Did God really say, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Forgive others as you have been forgiven. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Did God really say he loves you? You. Did God really say those things? First question in all of Holy Writ, did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We all know how that turned out. The second question in the Bible, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Verse 9 in our text this morning. God asks it as he walks in the Garden of Eden at the time of the evening breeze. What the old translation renders in the cool of the day. The tranquil scene of peace at dusk in paradise belies the pain that is underfoot. God searches for man, for his creation, fruitlessly. God desires fellowship intimacy with the pinnacle of God's creation, that which he created in his own image, but the first couple are nowhere to be found. He calls out to the man and says, Where are you? When God was last in the garden, everything was fine. Now that he has returned after a brief absence, everything is not fine. When God last saw Adam and Eve, they walked about freely. Now that he returns, he cannot locate them, and they are hiding behind trees. Where are you? He calls out. Where are you, my friends? Are you where you want to be in your life? Or not? If not, are you far from it? Or relatively close? Are you fearful, lonely, stressed, exasperated, depressed, tired, excited, expectant? Are you on a mountaintop or in a valley? Are you on top of the world or is the weight of the world on your shoulders? Have you resigned yourself to your lot in life? Or do you still hope, still dream for something better? Where are you? Verse 9 says, Where are you? If the first question is a question of trust, 
asked to humanity by the enemy in an effort to shake that trust. The second question is a question of searching, seeking, asked to humanity by God in an effort to locate us now that things have gone awry. There is a whole host, a bevy, a litany of profound and provocative biblical questions following on the heels of these two. Where is your brother Abel? I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Is the Lord among us or not? Is there no balm in Gilead? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God? How long will you go limping with two different opinions? Should I not have pity on Nineveh, that great city? Where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? Do you want to be made well? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What will it profit a person to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? How can we who died to sin go on living in it? Who are these clothed in white robes and whence have they come? But each and every one of those questions harkens back in one way or another, flows from and depends on these original questions to humankind back in the Garden of Eden. Those clarion calls which have hung heavy in the air down through the centuries ever since. Did God really say, where are you? Where are you? Did God really say something different about where you should be? Today's text, of course, is but a snippet of a much larger, more involved story entailing many interpretations and rendering diverse levels of meaning. It is impossible to do it justice in only one sitting. Nevertheless, some wisdom can be gleaned. The serpent tempts Eve back in verse 5 of this chapter, outside of our assigned reading, by claiming when you eat of this forbidden fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Two verses later, Scripture records that after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So the irony here is that the devil told the truth at least on one level. Their eyes were opened. One could argue the difference that this experience did not render them more like God, but only revealed to them their nakedness and left them scurrying for cover. But on some level, their eyes were, in fact, opened. Innocence has now been lost, and paradise has been sullied. Sin and disobedience have now entered creation for the first time, resulting in corruption, to some degree the severing of the relationship between God and humanity, and the soon-to-emerge penalty of death. This is what scholars call original sin. 
Believing that this state is now inherited, passed down throughout all generations of humankind ever since. The eyes of both were opened, verse 7 declares, and they knew that they were naked. Apart from its literal meaning, of course, taken metaphorically, the term naked can be understood to symbolize being weak, frail, vulnerable, and helpless. To be naked means to be exposed, to be seen for who and what you truly are. Does anyone in here this morning know what it's like to be weak or vulnerable or helpless? Does anyone know what it's like not to be able to hide that, but to have such a state revealed? Verse 10 here has Adam say to God, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. Verse 8 remarks, the man and his wife hid themselves. From the presence of the Lord God. <clears throat> Verse 7 states, They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They are afraid. They hide themselves. They sew fig leaves together to cover themselves. Notice they hide themselves both from each other and from God. My friends, the consequence of sin, of our pride and disobedience, is that we are afraid and we hide ourselves from each other and from God. We cover ourselves up with hundreds of fig leaves to mask our guilt and shame, to cloak our being, in fact, at root, weak, vulnerable, and helpless. And over time, if we are adept at this, we can begin to believe in the truth of our fig leaves. So if fame and popularity are my fig leaves, I appear to you to be strong and confident. And I begin to believe that about myself eventually. If money and possessions and my house and my cars are my fig leaves. I send the message to you that I am smart, ambitious, self-reliant, hardworking, successful, and desirable. And I began eventually to think that about myself. If I achieve degrees and diplomas and successfully ascend the corporate ladder from one ring of promotion to another, I have stitched together some very impressive, persuasive, large, flowing, green fig leaves. And with these fig leaves, I can convince you and I can convince me and I can convince the whole world that I am happy, I am joyful, I am content, I am successful, I have made it, and I am satisfied, all the while covering up that deep, uncomfortable truth that I am empty, I am hollow. I have a deep, profound, nagging feeling that there must be more to life than this. That I am missing something. That there is a lack at the core of my existence that no number of gorgeous fig leaves can ever cover up. And so I become like the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. To whom God says, you say. I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not knowing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and guess what else? You got it, naked. 
Make no mistake about it, my friends. We are a race of fig leaves. We collect them from an early age and often do not stop. You got them. I got them. Everyone has them. Our collections are very impressive. Many of us have now come to understand ourselves in terms of our fig leaves. And many of us will die wearing them. Because they cover up and mask the fact that we are naked. That we are frail, weak, vulnerable, afraid, and helpless. The fact is, my diplomas and my degrees will mean nothing if I become afflicted with cancer suddenly. The size of my house will not matter if my spouse dies or leaves me. My paycheck will merely be ink on paper if my work is drudgery and spirit crushing. The status I have painstakingly achieved over the years will be revealed to be a house of cards should death take one of my children. I have been in enough nursing homes over the years to see the massive numbers of people who are reduced to one bed barely bigger than their body, one dresser with three drawers containing all their clothes, one bedside table with space for two pictures and one book, all in a 20-foot by 12-foot room, half of which is theirs because they share it with another person, only a drawn curtain separating them. Their only thought Does anyone out there love me? And if so, when are they coming to see me? And so, the recognition and acknowledgement of fig leaves for what they are leads to true wisdom, life-changing priorities, and above all, honesty. In Philippians chapter 3, St. Paul ticks off a long list of very impressive fig leaves before calling them for what they are, and concluding, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss, Paul says, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, of all fig leaves, and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ. If we drop the fig leaves... Drop the pretense. Drop the facade. We will recognize ourselves for who we are. Naked. Vulnerable. Not in control. Capable of being greatly injured or hurt. To reach that uncomfortable reality is to have your eyes open. But when your eyes are truly opened, they are not only opened to the depressing plight of humankind without God, without transcendence or spiritual guidance, or to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, all is vanity and a striving after wind. But your eyes are also open to the wealth of biblical material which communicates to you that in your naked, helpless, vulnerable state, God sees you, God knows, and God cares. The Word of God says God chose you from before the foundation of the world. That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
that God's eyes beheld your unformed substance when you were being intricately wrought in the depths of the earth. That all the days of your life were recorded in His book before as yet any of them had come to pass. That the hairs of your head are all numbered by God. That you need not be anxious, for life is more than food and the body is more than clothing. That since God feeds the birds of the air which neither sow nor reap, and the lilies of the field who neither toil nor spin, how much more will He feed you? And how much more value are you than they? That your Father knows what you need. Therefore seek first His kingdom, and the rest shall be added unto you. That all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord, who are called according to His purpose. And that nothing shall ever be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perhaps the last irony of the text is this. When the serpent tempts them in chapter 3, verse 5, he does so with this enticement. You will be like God. You will be like God. But when God created Adam and Eve, back in chapter 1, verse 26, it relates that he did so, quote-unquote, in his own image, according to his own likeness. In his own image. And according to his own likeness so god created humans according to his own likeness and satan tempts us by saying we can be like god does anyone get it yet did you catch that how can you tempt us with what we already have how can you tempt us with what we already possess that's like offering you 100 pennies when you got a dollar bill in your pocket. How can someone tempt you with love when you are already loved? How can the world tempt you with acceptance and approval when you are already accepted and already approved of? How can the enemy tempt you with external things which say to the world that you matter when you already matter? You are already created. In the image and likeness of God. You are already like God in that sense. You already matter. You have always mattered. And you always will matter. You are of infinite value and worth. Because you're you. Because God created you. And God loves you. When your eyes are open, truly opened, you can answer those two questions we started out with. Those first two questions ever uttered in biblical history. Where are you? And did God really say? Where are you? I'm right here. Naked, weak, vulnerable, scared to death, and not in control of anything. Did God really say you're unique, valuable, precious, Created in his own image and likeness? Did God really say you are beloved and reconciled and accepted? That you are forgiven, saved, and blessed? Yes, yes he did. He said all of that and then some. Eyes truly opened. Eyes truly opened. Amen.